Hey, we're going to get into the word today because I'm so excited. If you're tuning on, please don't tune out because we're talking about the triumphant mind. The triumphant mind. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for your wisdom, your truth that sets us free. Today, Father God, we submit ourselves to your truth. We don't rise above it. We absolutely surrender to it unconditionally. We don't resist it. In Jesus' mighty name, and all those who love the Lord said, Amen. Amen. The triumphant mind. This is a chapter in a work I'm writing, and I wanted to speak out of what I've written. So please bear with me. But this is a mental framework for the victorious believer. A mental framework for the victorious and overcoming believer. Today I would like to deal with the God-giving instrument called the mind. Your mind is a muscle. Did you know that? Your mind is a muscle. It has to exercise in order to grow and expand and be strengthened. You have to, you have to train it in order to function properly. You have to use self-discipline in order to cause your mind to come to its full. Your mind is an instrument given to you by God for multiple purposes, and we're going to touch on a few today. The use of our minds is important because it is how we pursue God. It is how we get saved. It is how we love God, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. You see, a, a triumphant mind, a triumphant mind can produce such a tremendous amount of freedom. Actually, it produces complete freedom. It gives an incredible amount of confidence. A triumphant mind makes you completely, not just free, but an overcomer over those things trying to overcome you. Your mind really determines the experience of your life. Now, ideas precede outcomes. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. Everything that is created in this world is preceded by an idea. Books, paintings, portraits, symphonies. They're all preceded by first the author having an idea. Then he writes. The painter having an idea. Then he draws and paints. The composer having an idea, and then he composes. Buildings, cities, inventions are all preceded first by an idea before they were realized. Therefore, all things in this world are first subjective before they become objective. Things exist first in the thought form before they exist in concrete matter. There's so much that's not in the concrete yet because we haven't applied our minds when it comes to having an idea, a thought, a perspective. We also see that nations rise and fall on ideas. History proves that productive and destructive power of a political idea and what it can do to an entire society. From the beginning of time, all forms of government they were and they still are run on ideas. For example, very specific ideas are what drives tribalism. It's a very specific idea that a person who's an anarchist, a person who's an anarchist has a very specific mindset. Ideas drove colonialism, socialism, drives Marxism today. Ideas drives communism and democracies. These all stem from certain ideas that form their ideologies, and then what they do is they go and they execute the pictures that they've had in their mind of how a government ought to run. We conclude then that culture, technology, society, governments, all finds its roots in the form of an idea first. Now we also see that in the Garden of Eden, 
the snake introduced an idea to Eve that was contrary to God's command, right? But what exactly happened when Adam and Eve decided not to obey God? The answer is found in the command that God gave them. Genesis 2 verse 17, it says this, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So the point here is that God called the tree of the tree that they ought not to participate in a tree of knowledge of both good and evil. That specific tree offered an illegal knowledge that was unlawful to have. Let me say that again. That tree in the middle of the garden, that tree offered illegal understandings, illegal thoughts, illegal ideas that God did not want them to ever have. The moment they received a perverted knowledge by eating from this tree is when they fell from their position with God. That's when the separation took place. You see, that tree planted in the middle of the Garden of Eden struck at Adam and Eve's minds. It struck at their thoughts. It struck at their understanding, and they fell. What happens in your mind matters. It struck at their minds and introduced a corrupting knowledge God didn't want for them to have. And the rest is history. Again, corrupted ideas, twisted mindsets, perverted knowledge always has consequences. The ideas, the thoughts that you entertain in your mind right now will play out in your life. Physically, relationally, it does play out, whether for good or for bad. So we concluded, therefore, whether it has to do with spiritual ideas, political ideas, whether it has to do with relational ideas or social ideas, they all have outcomes. Ideas play out in concrete. So what happens in people's minds ultimately happens in their realities. And this is why we as believers need to realize how ideas control individuals, dominate families. Ideas, mindsets, influence generations, govern nations. Ideas guide destinies and determine human histories. So ideas, thoughts, perspectives, beliefs and are more powerful than you and I actually make it out to be. Uh, we treat an idea of evil, remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We, are tr we treat an evil idea like, well, it's not a perfect idea. No, if it's evil, it's evil, and it has an outcome of evil in your life. So the, your, the enemy of you is an evil thought. So for the believer, I would warn and encourage you, consider the voices you allow in your life. Who are they? Who are the voices that allow, that you allow to shape your thoughts? Who are the people, the voices, the teachers who help you shape your idea of self, of God, of life, of eternity, of death? Who, who's helping you shape your thinking? Because that person is very powerful and very consequential in your life and in your future. Whose influence was part of your establishing your beliefs? Who helped you establish your beliefs? Or who did you allow to influence your thoughts when you constructed your beliefs? And how about your priorities? Certain people prioritize certain things because their parents gave them the mindset they have. Therefore, that, that's what's valuable to them, and this is what's not valuable to them. You see, because of the voices in their lives. Here's a big one. Who helped you erect mental guardrails and set up ultimate goals when it came to your personal life-altering decisions? Who to marry? Who not to marry? Career paths. How about this one? Worldviews. Who helped you shape your worldview? Was it mainstream media? <laughs> or was it scriptures? 
Who helped you see the world the way you see the world? Whoever you allow to form and fashion your, life, your thought life has become a general contractor in your lifescaping business. God gives us His thoughts in Scripture form for the purpose of allowing us to be ruled by heaven instead of being ruled by earth. You are being ruled by the thoughts that have been injected into your mind. You are ruled and governed by those thoughts. And God gave us His thoughts in Scripture form so that we can be ruled by Him and heaven instead of by earth and evil. The Bible is a compilation of God's thoughts. That's what it is from cover to cover. If you hold the Bible like that, that's just a compilation of all the ways God thinks. Here is how God thinks about all different things about life, about man, about sin, it being man's biggest problem, and God's solution to man's biggest problem through substitutionary atonement in Jesus Christ hanging upon a cross. So He became your substitute so you don't have to, and that way God doesn't have to become less perfect and compromise Himself in order to once again be reconciled with sinful man. I mean, you know, God's thoughts are very clearly laid out within Scriptures, and He gives it to us so that we can live in the light instead of walk in darkness. He has given us His thoughts so that we may be led by the Spirit instead of walk according to the flesh. That's why God has given us His mind, His ideas, His thoughts, His way of thinking. His perspective. So in this session today, it is my goal to encourage you to commit to serious and diligent thinking, all right? I just coined it that way. Serious and diligent thinking. Employ your mind. Can we all say serious and diligent thinking? Let's try it again. Serious and diligent thinking. Here we go. Okay, I really want us to do that here at Christ Nation because it seems like if we had to employ our brains, our mind, our thinking, and we gave serious and diligent thinking about life, then we would probably be, possibly be, the only group of people in the world today who actually does that. I kid you not. Think about it. People used to read books in order to understand and communicate. Then they started just writing letters to each other and read a whole entire letter. And letters used to be thick. And then it became just a little email, right? Everything's getting smaller and smaller because people's concentration is like, uh, what was that? Oh, bird. You know. People's concentration spans have become so short. It's gone from books to long letters to short emails all the way to, to texts. All right? Now they used to write a text. I still write, um, hi, Brandon, how are you doing? Hope you're doing well. Here's the information. And then God bless you, praying for you. Jacques, you know, I still write like a letter on my text, but people go like, K. Like, what's K? And then they, they go away from K. Now it's just like they, they no longer write books or letters or emails. It's all, all the way down to, to, to texts, small texts, and now it's like a tweet. It's like somebody wrote a sentence on a tweet, and you go like, what? What's wrong with him? <laughs> And now they, just, now they don't even write. Now they just send you a picture to communicate an emotion. You know, a little emoji. <laughs> or, now we're just communicating emotions. We can't even, like, pay attention to a word. Right? So my hope is that we will take serious and diligent, that we will be serious and diligent thinkers because God gave us this instrument called the mind, and without it... We become feeble. We are emotional basket cases because we can't think. We just feel. We have no direction in life. We have no purpose, no meaning because we just feel. Well, that didn't feel good. But God wants us to think because when you sit and order your thoughts, Remember, cities are built after somebody had a thought. Uh, what can happen to your life if you would just have a God thought? So serious thinking is what God called us to. You may, you may ask the question, well, serious and diligent thinking, unto what end? Why are you telling me to think? This is what we do at school and at college, not at church. Wrong. 
Serious thinking is the God-ordained means of gaining knowledge, knowledge about Christ. Gaining knowledge about Christ. Without serious thinking about man's depravity and God's substitutionary atonement made in Christ Jesus on behalf of man, we would never be able to grasp just how kind, how gracious, how great, and how good God has been toward us. If we don't understand what the cross means and why it is good news to me, if we don't understand it, why would we be grateful? You see, until I understood my depravity, that I fell into sin, I had eyes, but I couldn't see God's glory. I had ears, but I couldn't hear His good news. I had a heart of stone, but I, therefore I couldn't respond with love toward Him. All I did was hate Him, and that was all I could possibly do, and that I was dead, dead, D-E-A-D, in my sins. I had no life. And God, a perfectly holy God, became incompatible or incompatible with a vile, dead, and sinful human, fallen man. Became completely incompatible with a holy God. But God sent Jesus to be our substitution, a perfect Christ to be our substitutionary atonement, to atone for what happened to us so that we could become like Him, like Christ. Jesus came, let me say this, to die upon a cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He didn't purchase your value. He paid the penalty for your sins so you could be reconciled to a perfectly holy God without God compromising His perfection. God never compromised His justice, but... He made you compatible with Him once again in Christ alone. Now, if we, if we cannot understand the gospel, if we cannot wrap our minds around substitutionary atonement in Christ Jesus and how He became the answer to man's problem, which is sin, if we don't understand that, why would we be thankful for the cross? Like, why would we be grateful to what God did for us? Why would we be humbled by His goodness? How could we even perceive Him to be good if we look at the evil in the world, which, by the way, is the one reason why most people cannot serve God. Because they look at the evil in the world and they go like, well, where's the good God that you're talking about? But if we can't wrap our minds around what happened at the cross, we couldn't be grateful. We couldn't be thankful. We couldn't be humbled. We couldn't sing His praises. But what's happened is nobody tells a story. Nobody actually outlines the doctrine of total depravity in man's, in man's fallen state. They don't like that to start off with. And if you don't see that, you cannot see God's goodness either. And you wouldn't need Him in the first place. And, and, if, and if that's not... Because you know why we don't talk about that? It takes too much, takes too much thinking. Like, what do you mean I was deprived? I was totally depraved. What is that? What is substitutionary atonement? What is that? Like, I don't get it. I don't get anything. But you know what? Why don't you say something that makes me feel good? Go ahead. <laughs> Do you see where the church is at today? Say stuff that makes me just walk out here and smile. I need to smile again. That's where we are at. That's the problem with the world today. Because what happens here, culture responds to. Why do you think some of the greatest moments in the history of this nation, the greatest turning points in this nation, happened from the pulpits? If you don't first give serious thought to our fallen state, resulting in depravity, then how can we possibly give serious thought to God's goodness through His substitutionary atonement in Christ? How could my gratitude toward Christ be real if I don't have the knowledge of what it is that He saved me from? Now, the Apostle Paul <clears throat> understood with all clarity. Let me just tell you, people, when you start talking about fallen man and what God saved us from, people will leave your church if you're a pastor. They will leave it because that's not what made me feel good. And that's too much thinking work. I want to show you something. The Apostle Paul understood with all clarity the details of His salvation. 
He knew the sinful Paul that needed saving, and he knew the perfect Christ that did the saving. And that is exactly why he was able to honestly and sincerely say in Philippians 3.8, I count all things to be lost in view, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Suddenly, when he recognized the sinful Paul, fallen and dead in his sins, and the perfect holy God with which he is no longer compatible, and the Jesus Christ that came and became the substitutionary atonement, and that became the answer to man's problem and to Paul's problem, when he saw what Jesus did, he recognized it to be valuable, and he calls it the surpassing value of knowing, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. He counts everything else in life, Loss. Everything else in life, loss. Check this out. The reason people value things on the earth the way they do in a, at expense of valuing Christ is because they haven't yet wrapped their mind around where they were, who they were, and what Jesus Christ saved them from. Because they cannot wrap their minds around. It takes too long. Are you kidding me? I can't be here for more than 45 minutes. i got to go to the next thing. Let me just tell you something about, about attention span. People don't have attention spans, right? They have to go from books to letters down to emails all the way to text and now just tweets. All right? And then not just a letter. No, a face. Uh, emoji. You know why? You know, you know that they say that they don't have attention spans? Of course they have attention spans. How long is the average movie today? Two hours? Why is binging such a big deal? If people can't pay attention, of course they can't pay attention. They've lost interest. I switch the movie off that loses my interest, right? So do you. I walk out. I ask for my money back. Take the popcorn home. But I don't spend time over things I have zero interest in. But here's the problem. People really have zero interest in Christ. And they have such great interest in their own careers. They have such great interest because they find no value in what Jesus did. Why do they find no value in what Jesus did? Because they don't know where, what they were saved from. So if a church ever teaches you total depravity, that you had eyes and couldn't see, ears and couldn't hear, a heart that couldn't respond because it was a heart of stone, that you were dead in your sins, and that you became altogether worthless, as Romans says. If somebody teaches you that, he's not your enemy, he's your friend. Because he helps you understand the value of Christ. And when you recognize the value of Christ, then like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8, you will count all things in your life as loss in comparison to this great value that you see in Jesus. Oh, he's valuable. So much more than that boat. So much more than this career. So much more than that retirement. So much more than anything else. That's what Paul said. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. I get it. I get it. Paul got it. The church today, they don't. That's why their priorities are elsewhere. Your priority is with what you value. God gave us a mind that we may have the knowledge of Christ's glory. He gave us a mind that we may have the knowledge of His goodness, His justice, His wrath, His love, His goodness, His mercy, His kindness, His grace. That's why you have... This thing called the mind so that you can wrap it around the, the all-surpassing value of Christ. When we have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, then we will understand how surpassing He is in comparison to any and any, anything that we have and we may possess in this life. You see, serious and diligent thinking is God's means to an end. Serious and diligent thinking is, is a God-given means to this end right here. That's why I'm so thankful for our church. I know that preaching is wonderful, right? Being affirmed in what you already believe is actually a good feeling. But to learn something new, you know, it takes attention. It takes willpower, self-discipline, focus, time, effort, energy. It takes these things, which we don't like to give to it because we don't have much value in it. But I know that here it is different. And I want to show you why it is so important for us to understand this. 
Why do I say serious and diligent thinking? Because so much of God is already understood, is only understood when we relentlessly pursue after knowing Him. Uh, actually, really, none of God is understood unless we do serious thinking with our minds. Unless you apply this instrument, you have no understanding of God at all whatsoever. Proverbs 2 verse 3 to 6 says this, Lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver, wow. Lift up your voice for understanding. The person who wants to employ this goes, All right, I sign up. I want to learn. I want to understand. I want to get it. I want to know. Help me. That's what it's saying. Lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her understanding as silver, as silver, in other words, if you become as committed in understanding the things of God as you are in making money, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Then you will have this understanding of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. John Piper said this, and I quote, Thinking is indispensable on the path to passion for God. Thinking is indispensable on the path to passion for God. I remember uh, this was, had to be in 1995. I was just born. And uh, <laughs> I, I had traveled to the United States as a newborn. And, <laughs> and uh, I went to, uh, I believe it was Phoenix, Arizona. There was this conference, a teenage conference. I was a youth pastor. I have been my whole life just about. And I went to this teen mania conference, which was a two-day conference. And I sat in a stadium watching Ron Luce talk at teenagers who completely ignored him. 20,000 teenagers completely ignoring him. I kid you not, as a South African born and raised, I was shocked to my core over the culture I recognized in the American teens at the time. This was 1995. And I remember Ron Lou standing up there in the beginning of this conference. Teenagers were out there hanging on each other, kissing, wearing Nirvana t-shirts, listening to their songs, their rap and everything completely ignoring Ron Luce. They were talking so loud in the audience, 20,000 of them, I struggled to hear Ron Luce speak over the microphone. And Ron said this, he said, when this weekend is over, we will have thousands of teenagers on their knees crying out to God, worshiping God, running to the front, repenting, giving their lives to the Lord. In just two days, this is what's going to happen. I'm sitting over there going... <laughs> Right, I don't know if you're seeing what I'm looking at, but it ain't going to happen, not here. Not Mr. Nirvana over there and Mr. Tupac over here and that couple, you know, hooking up over there. No, it's not happening. But, you know, by the end of that weekend, exactly what he said is what happened. Kids were on their knees worshiping God. They were praying and they were crying out to God. They were repenting. They were running forward. They were, th seriously... That they were breaking up with their girlfriends. They were throwing drugs on the stage. They were, they were getting rid of stuff. Uh, if you've been to those Teen Mania conferences, I think Sarah has, you know, it's an amazing thing how that happens. And I, I wondered how did that happen? Well, this John Piper points out what really happened there. Thinking, thinking, what you put your mind on for a period of time is indispensable on the path to being passionate for God being passionate. Psalm 39.3 says it. Watch this progression, okay? He says, while I was musing, pondering, meditating upon, thinking, considering, reasoning, while I was employing my mental faculties regarding God, the fire burned. While I was musing, the fire burned. And then I spoke with my tongue. While I was musing, the fire burned, and I spoke with my tongue. You know what happens at the end of those teen mania? 
thousands of kids, at the end of that weekend, thousands of kids sign up for missions trips to go and preach the gospel in other countries. So here they are for a weekend, for two days, they're putting their mind on the preaching of the gospel and hearing the good news, and they start wrapping their mind around doctrinal concepts here and there. They miss most, but they get some, and then as the weekend goes on, they grab more. And, and as their mind is grabbing more and more truth, their heart starts becoming more and more aflame and ablaze. And the more their heart burns, at the end of that weekend is, where do I sign up? Because I have to speak the truth of God right now. That's how it happens. That's the process. That's why what's happening is there's churches aren't ablaze in their hearts, passionate towards the things of God. Because nobody has to employ their mind in wrapping their understanding around the doctrines of grace on the doctrines of God. Because we don't have time. We don't have time. <laughs> we have praise and work. We have everything else, and we only, you know, we got to go. We got the next thing to do. And I'm not saying we need to have longer services. I'm saying we need to get into the Word of God more seriously, more consistently. And we need to take the Word of God intellectually, serious in an intellectual way also. So this verse made me realize the reason I sometimes feel like I've drifted in my affection from God is not because I'm loving Him less. Now, I know that this relates to each and every person here today because every person here today at times feel like you've drifted in your affection from, you've drifted away from God in your heart, in your affection toward Him. But it's not that you're loving Him less. It's that you think of Him less. It's that you're not employing your mental capabilities and capacity to wrap your thoughts around His perfect doctrines, which is Strong enough, good enough, pure enough to save the soul. We have to wrap our minds around doctrine. Now thinking in itself is not the goal, but it is the means through which one can reach the goal, which is to know Him more. And as a result of knowing Him more, I now love Him more. And as a result of being more affectionate toward Him and loving Him more, I now serve Him in a greater way. My thoughts lead to my affections, while my affections lead to my actions. You see, the problem I see in unbelievers, or in us, excuse me, as believers, is that we wish that our hearts were ablaze with zeal for God. We just wish that it was. We wish that for ourselves, we wish that for our children, we wish that for our loved ones. I mean, if you would see your son just on fire for the Lord, wouldn't that excite you? Isn't that what you hope for him and wish for him? Of course it is. But we haven't realized that we will never have hearts on fire for God while wiring our minds to our TVs for hours and hours and hours and never spending the same amount of time thinking through scriptural doctrine. It has got to become a greater priority, folks. You cannot get through the hard times coming up in the near future without applying this. You cannot even think clearly without applying this. And, and I don't want to jump the gun, but I'll show you. You see, we can't have our hearts ablaze with the love of God when we give ourselves to hours and hours of entertainment, hours and hours of hanging out with others while hardly ever giving serious thought to Bible doctrine. Somebody says, well, I just keep praying and believing God will light my heart on fire. I just pray, God, light my heart on fire. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you do it, God. Go, light my heart on fire. Well, I thought about this. <clears throat> the truth is, Prayer will never accomplish what only understanding can accomplish. Understanding will never do for you what only repentance will do for you. You see, repentance will never accomplish what only praising and worshiping God can accomplish. We have to learn as believers that serious thinking and meditation, is, uh, th these are irreplaceable. They are irreplaceable disciplines. No other spiritual practice or heavenly virtue can do for you what serious and diligent thinking can accomplish in you. Nothing does for you what a renewed mind, no, nothing renews your mind other than diligent thinking <laughs> and then repenting accordingly. Serious thinking about scriptures and doctrine is vital to our affection toward God. It is vital towards our zeal uh, uh, for His person. It's vital to our desires for His word. 
2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes to his disciple and he says this. Watch this. 2 Timothy 2.7. He says, think. Can everybody say think? Think. He says, think over what I say. Think over it. Ponder over it. Muse over it. Meditate over it. Consider it. Reason through it. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Okay, so here, a lot goes into this verse, okay? Here is a fascinating truth. Paul commands his disciple Timothy to think over what he was told, to ponder and keep his mind on what was told him, and promises that if he does that, then God will supply him with understanding over everything. Based on his diligent thinking... God will supply him with understanding. Let me say it to you. Based on your diligent thinking over doctrines, God will supply understanding to you. It's upon that premise that you receive from God what you couldn't figure out yourself. It's upon your diligence in thinking through doctrines and scriptures that God will... Breathe understanding into your life. That's our responsibility. And upon our responsibility, God gifts us. Somebody says, but Jacques, why such emphasis on thinking? (laughs) Why? (coughs) Isn't Christianity a matter of the heart? Well, I'm not saying it isn't. But let's go with that thought, okay? Isn't Christianity just a matter of the heart? Am I not a Christian because I believe with my heart? Love with my heart? Trust with my heart? Receive from God with my heart by believing in and receiving in faith? Isn't that Christianity? Well, I want to read to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards, arguably one of the greatest pastors, authors, evangelists, philosophers, and thinkers to ever walk the soil of America. He said this, and I quote, but just so you know, it's difficult to read him, but I'll explain it. He says, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections of my hearer as high as I possibly can, provided that they are affected with nothing but truth. Okay, so he's saying this. He believed that the duty that he had before God was to elevate his hearer's affection for God as high as he possibly can. When he stood behind the pulpit, that was his goal, to see how he can get every heart to be as affectionate toward God as possible. But he believed it was by articulating biblical truth with absolute clarity so their minds would grasp that Bible doctrine and that Bible doctrine, that truth, will produce an affection and a love toward God and a surrender to serve Him wholeheartedly. That truth does it. But you know what we rely upon now is soft music in the background. Nice lighting. And then, <laughs> and then we do the whole, Dale Carnegie, let's sell you a product here. You need to go on this mission trip. You need to sing this song. You should raise your hands. You should give. You should serve. You should come more often. And now we start selling all the benefits you would have if, in fact, you would only come more or give more or serve more. You see what I'm saying? He believed, and I believe, that the person's real affection for God can only be lifted their real affection for God, not their hope of what they can benefit from something, but their heart toward God can only be lifted by a truth from God, well explained, that they can wrap their minds around and that they can understand with their reasoning. Now, their hearts will respond in affection to God, and the result of their affection to God is, then I speak. I've got to speak because I love Isn't it so true when somebody falls in love, what they want to do is, I just want to stand on the mountaintop and shout how much I love you, man. (laughs) Isn't that true? 
So what churches now do is they sell a bill of goods to try and get people to act like they love. All you have to do is you don't even have to think. Just receive this emoji. So he knew he wasn't going to accomplish zeal and affection for God in the hearts of his hearers through emotionalism and hype, but by helping them think through seriously God's doctrine. You see, the truth of God reaches through your mind and touches your heart. It reaches through your mind and touches your heart. So if I'm able to explain the gospel with all clarity, then I will be able to proclaim the gospel with sincerity. Now, I want to I just go to the next section here for lack of time. And I want to address what we are viewing in the world today when it comes to being irrational. I don't know if you are with me on this, but when you turn your TV on and you watch a debate, you go like, how can a person actually think like that? Like, how are they being that illogical? I mean, I am sometimes absolutely amazed at the lack of logic. And I'm sure so are you. What is the reason for people being so irrational, though? Why are they somewhat so contrary to normalcy? What is the reason for that? How did that happen? Especially when it comes to, you know, our educated crowd. Not that you're not educated. I'm not educated. I'm just saying those who see themselves as elitists and those intelligent educators, they seem to become completely illogical and irrational, especially when it comes to science and biology. I mean, you know, I, I know he has these private parts, but you know what? We're going to call him a she. Hey, so my father-in-law went to the doctor a day or two ago, and I said to him on his way there, I said, hey, Jim, make sure when you check the right boxes when they ask you what your gender was, all right? He goes, why? I said, because the last time I went to the doctor, it was, it was probably two years ago. I, I was struggling. I don't know why my heart was beating as fast and as hard as it was. <clears throat> I don't know, because I probably Tina was lying next to me in bed. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, what's going on with my heart? I rushed to the doctor, and they had me fill out this form, and they gave me all these options to choose from, male, female. I mean, there was like 65 different genders I could choose from. <laughs> I'm like, wow, it's Christmas. I get to do whatever I want, you know. And I thought to myself, you know, this is so strange. Isn't he like a medical doctor that ought to know exactly what biology is about when it comes to the male anatomy and so on? I'm like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check female today. And then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to tell the doctor, doctor, I'd like you to find out what's wrong with me because I have been seeming to have struggled with lower abdominal pains today. Go ahead. Tell me what's wrong. But why are people so irrational, so illogical? Matthew 16, verse 1 through 4, Jesus is speaking. And I used to read this portion and I never understood it. But I know today you will. And he explains, he gives us the answer. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, verse 1. And to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather. For the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. I bet you. These guys, these Pharisees and Sadducees that said, hey, Jesus, give us a sign. Show us who the Messiah is going to be and when he will come. Jesus gives them this answer. You look at the sky and you see that it's, re that it's red and you know tomorrow the weather is going to be this way. And then you see it's red and stormy and you know the weather is going to be this So you're reading. You have the ability to read the future in a way. And then he says, but you adulterous, evil generation, you seek for a sign, and you're not going to get one. I bet you when he walked away with that answer to their question, they had to have gone, he lost it. <laughs> he had to have lost it. Like, that makes no sense. 
Let me tell you, let me show you what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying to them, you guys are really good at observing and reasoning when it comes to this world. You look at the sky and you can tell the future weather. You have the faculties to reason rationally. But why can't you use those same abilities to observe and reason when it comes to interpreting the signs of the times? What are the signs of the times? It's when the Messiah will, will arrive. Why can't you rationalize and observe those signs? Now think about this with me. The Pharisees and the Sadducees knew the Scriptures by heart. They studied the Scriptures. There was no way they, they should have had a problem reciting all of the Old Testament prophecies that profiled the coming Messiah. So they knew the Old Testament prophecies that introduced what, the, what we ought to wait, look for when the Messiah shows up. And this is how we would validate who He was by connecting Him to the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. You're following what I'm saying, right? They knew it. They had every word in front of them of who to look for. On the one hand, they had the Messiah profile outlined in Scripture. And on the other hand, they were looking at Jesus and simply couldn't see how Jesus perfectly matched the one they were looking for. It's like, all right, you were born in the right city. You are from David, the right line. Every single prophecy you've given, all right, I get it, I get it, you're it. But you know what? For some reason, I just cannot see it being you. Just not you. This is what Jews do today. They have, a, they have reasoning faculties, but they can't rationally match those two together. When it came to observing the signs of the times, identifying the Messiah, it was like their understanding went dark. Hold in there with me for a second. You're going to be blessed by this. Jesus then gives them an answer as to why they became incapable of perceiving, thinking, reasoning, interpreting, and rationalizing. Why they, be, why they became illogical and irrational when it came to godly matters. And, and Jesus' reason as to why they were irrational then is Jesus' reason as to why people are today irrational and illogical. He told us in verse 4 what it was. He said, you're an evil, adulterous generation seeking a sign. You're an evil, adulterous generation seeking a sign. What does this mean? What does it mean that they were an adulterous generation what does being adulterous have to do with being in, unable to, to be... What, is, what does an adulterous heart have anything to do with not being able to think with your mind? What, is it, what does being adulterous have to do with your inability to understand who the Messiah might be? And what does it mean that they were looking for a sign? Let me run through this. I'll show you. We know that Jesus came for His bride, right? Yet they were, they were unwilling to receive Him. We know that Jesus came to be their bride, but they were unwilling to receive Him. Jesus came for whom He was going to marry, but the one He was to marry didn't want Him. Because their hearts were already committed to other loves other gods, including Luke 16, 14 tells us their treasure. These guys loved their treasure. Matthew 6, 5 tells us that these guys, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they loved praise of men. That's why they were jealous that Jesus got praised. They loved themselves, Luke 18, 9 says. They loved money, Luke 16, 14 says. They were spiritual adulterers. They were married to stuff. They were married to the praise of men. They were spiritual adulterers. I couldn't explain it as well as John Piper explains it, so let me read it to you. Quote, this is why they were asking for a sign. They want to give the impression that there is not enough evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they are justified in not receiving Jesus as their bridegroom. But in fact, the problem is that they don't, they don't want Him as their bridegroom. 
They are dominated by a spirit of adultery. They prefer other sources of satisfaction. The explanation of their skepticism and their blindness about Jesus is not lack of evidence or lack of rational powers. The expl explanation is they are adulterous. End of quote. So in other words, their hearts were already given to another. They, they're not looking for Jesus. Even if they had the ability to rationalize and to observe, to observe Jesus to match the profile of the Messiah, they didn't want Him because that's not who they're looking for. They're looking for self. They're looking for treasure. They're looking for money. They're looking for praise of men. They're looking for the world. The Apostle Paul echoes the same idea that sin distorts an otherwise perfectly rational mind. Sin is what distorts thinking, and I'll show it to you. In Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. So here we see their understanding was darkened because their hearts were hardened. In other words, the root of an irrational mind and an illogical mind is a hardened heart towards God. We also see that in the life of Samson. Samson's heart was hardened through his sin, and then eventually he lost his sight. He didn't have insight because his heart was captured by sin for other women. We see in 2 Corinthians 3, 14, Paul says their minds were hardened. In 1 Timothy 6, 5, Paul says people have depraved minds. Their sin caused their minds to become depraved, which is another word for defective. Their thinking does not, no longer works. Romans 1.21 says Paul speaking that the minds became futile, that their minds became darkened, that their minds became foolish. You turn on the TV, you go like, I, I get it, Paul. I get how people's minds have become defective. They have depraved minds. Their minds have become futile. They now think foolishly. Their minds have been darkened. They cannot see rationally. So the conclusion here is that the corruption of the heart becomes breeding ground for the irrational, illogical, unreasonable thinking. When a person is irrational, when a person is unreasonable, irrational, it's because they have a heart problem. It's not with their mind, it's with their heart. You might say, well, is this really biblically congruently throughout scriptures? Yes, absolutely. Matthew 13, 19, Jesus talks about these different soils, the four kinds of soils, the first, second, and the third soil. Uh, the seed was sown. The seed is the word of God, but nothing came of it. Then the fourth soil, the same seed, fell on the fourth soil, but because the fourth soil was different, it produced 30, 60, and 100 times more fruit because of the seed. You see, the same seed, the same Word of God, fell on the first, second, third, and fourth soil. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with the seed. It was that there was something wrong with the soil. So I want to show you what the difference was between the first soil, that nothing could grow, there was nothing, no life there, in comparison to the fourth soil that produced mighty harvests. Watch this, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the Word of the kingdom and does not understand it when anybody hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it they cannot they do not wrap their mind around Christ's substitutionary atonement on your behalf they don't wrap their mind around the fact that they were depraved sinners uh, you know eyes that cannot see ears that cannot hear a heart that cannot respond dead in their sins and they were worthless absolutely worthless, and then a perfect God came, sent Jesus to make atonement, in other words, pay for the penalty of our sins in order to, once again, cause us to be reconciled to a God. If people can't wrap their minds around it, it doesn't matter how much they get told, oh, God loves you, just say, say this prayer. It doesn't matter how, how much you feel. That word has done nothing for that person because they don't understand it. They haven't wrapped their mind around that doctrine. God's solution to man's problem, which is sin. 
People today in the church, they still go like, well, I didn't sin, I made a mistake. They still don't understand just how evil sin really is before a perfectly holy God because they don't understand the attributes of a perfectly holy God, that He's also just and not just loving, and that He has to balance the scales of justice, otherwise He Himself becomes guilty. So people can't wrap their minds around those thoughts, and they don't have understanding. And here the Bible says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. This is the one on whom the seed was sown besides the word, besides the road. The devil comes and he snatches away the truth of God that could have caused your heart to be aflamed and ablaze for God, but it's snatched away because you didn't understand it. You didn't apply the faculties of your mind. When the word of God is sown in the heart of a person who does not understand, that person will be left fruitless. So understanding the gospel message, understanding Bible doctrine is crucial to conversion and it's crucial to fruit bearing. So now, let's finish off by looking at the first kind in comparison to the fourth kind of soil, which was very fruitful. Matthew 13, 23 says, And the one whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it. He doesn't just hear it. He understands it. Who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. The difference between these two soils, the soil that remained unconverted and the soil that represents the converted person, is understanding. Irrational, illogical, unreasonable thinking is the outcome of a hardened, sinful heart. That's what you're seeing in the world today. That's why somebody, that's why a local government can say, oh, we are, we are going to completely, you know, defund those guys that protect you. We're going to defund them so you won't have anybody to protect you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take your tax money and we're going to pay $65,000 for this day so that we can find you know, an outsource, a security company to come and protect us. But no, you don't have protection. And everybody goes like, hey, that's a great idea. Let's vote on that. And you think, how is that reasonable? I pay for your protection while you defund mine. Let's do it. I'll pay. How much do you need? I mean, how un irrational, unreasonable is that to treat anybody like that? And you go like, well, you know, here's an example of somebody who, who overstepped their bounds. Yeah, you can, reach to the you can reach to the exception and try and make it a rule. But then I can also reach to another exception and make that a rule if you want me to. Do you follow what I'm saying? If you want to reach to that exception to make that one person who overstepped his bounds a rule and, and comb everybody with the same brush, well, then, then let me reach to an exception in your world and, and, and comb everybody with that brush. But no, we can't, we can't even have these conversations because people are no longer reasonable. Why are they no longer reasonable and rational? It's because their hearts have been darkened, not just towards Christ, but in general. Where do you think gender fluidity comes from? You know, in my house, I have a little one that wants to marry a brother. I mean, like, am I now going to buy into that? <laughs> am I going to buy into that? No. They're children. No, but now what we need to do is we need to take advice from them as to, you know, who they want to be and feel like they are. It's so irrational. But that all stems from hardened, darkened, sinful hearts who refuse to accept their groom because they already love another. They have the ability to reason, but they won't because they are adulterers. God has given us each a mind to respond to Him. We are to love Him with all of our hearts and soul and mind. We are to renew our minds so that we can be transformed. 
We have to use our minds to pursue God, and using our minds for the purpose it was created. And when we do so, we will remain sane, rational, reasonable, and productive. Let's close our eyes. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you that you help us drill down and find the root cause, not always just stand around and fight the fruits, but discover the root cause, knowing that the gospel is the power of God to salvation, to save man's soul, but also save in every other area, whether it be relationships and families and society as a whole. And allow the gospel, Father God, I pray, that the clear preaching of the gospel to bring healing to our society that the clear preaching of the gospel will touch darkened hearts and the darkened hearts turn to God, repent from their spiritual adultery so that their minds can one, once again be functional. I pray, Father God, that your word is spread without compromise, with absolute clarity throughout this nation. In Jesus' name, amen.